Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Matthew Dix. This son of a bitch (laughs) has brought a bell on this train. One for every goddamn kid on this train. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is the pete jolly trio behind me now or it's george shearing's orchestra the internet is 50 50 on that one i have (laughs) torn my hair out seeing this track everywhere it appears on the internet being credited to one of those two very different jazz ensembles. But this is the last episode of 2018, and it's our 11th Holiday Stories episode. Whoa, I will tell you, this has been one heck of a year. This has been probably the busiest and perhaps the most successful year we've had at risk we, we put out the risk book we put out this this can't be happening series on amazon original stories we had some incredible episodes this year i'm exhausted but so grateful because the midterm elections went well and we've got so much amazing stuff in the works here at risk for 2019 so whew, let's celebrate let's celebrate we've got a really really fun holiday stories episode this year in a little bit we're gonna hear from brandon j sullivan but first we're gonna hear from Gigi lee it's her first time on the podcast you can find Gigi at j-i-j-i-l-e-e.com and here she is now with a story we call a korean christmas story
Hi. Thank you all for coming out on a school night. I'm very impressed. Normally, I would be at home watching Great British Baking Show. I'm re-watching season three now. <laughs> I need help. Um, so I'm Korean. Uh, I grew up in Miami. Okay, no one's from Florida here. Okay, thank you. 305. Um, and growing up, uh, for my younger brother and me, it was really hard trying to fit in because we were the only Korean people in Miami. And this was back in the 80s, so like no one thought we were unique or Brooklyn. <laughs> Meanwhile, my parents could care less about fitting in because they had the kind of confidence that only immigrant parents have where they're like, we survived the threat of communism, so we don't care if you can't pronounce our names. So my parents like really held on to their Korean identity and traditions. For example, our clothes. Uh, so when I was a little kid and if I had to go to a friend's birthday party, my mom would make me wear a hanbok which is a traditional Korean dress with long, colorful silk sleeves and an ornate floor-length gown. Uh, a hanbok is something you would wear to a wedding, not Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> and because we were Asian, we also lived in a no-shoes household, uh, which my American friends found strange. My mom thought they were heathens who would wear sneakers on our carpet as if we lived in a barn. Uh, one time, my neighbor Jenny comes over and she takes off her sneakers, as instructed, and my mom gasps because Jenny's feet are dirty. She's a kid. And my mom takes Jenny to the bathroom and scrubs her feet. <laughs> Jenny never came over again after that. <laughs> so growing up, it was tough to fit in and maintain friendships, but it was especially hard during Christmas. Um, so as a kid, my I just love the idea of Christmas. Uh, I was obsessed with Disney's Christmas Carol with Mickey Mouse. I thought Christmas was all about snow and these feasts with turkey and ham and lots of protein and just like lots of presents. Um, clearly, I did not pick up on the message of a Christmas Carol. Uh, but I lived in Miami, no chance of snow. And instead of a Christmas feast, we would have seaweed soup. So it was like any other day. And no presents because, you know, my parents survived the Korean War, so they thought a bowl of rice was a gift. Um, and so my brother and I, we would ask our parents, like, please, can we celebrate Christmas? And my parents would always say, no, we have to work on Christmas. Uh, my parents owned a small store, and they would go in every day, even holidays. And we were like, but you're not going to get any customers on Christmas. You never have customers which is the wrong thing to say to your hardworking immigrant parents because then they would like yell Korean expletives like, you selfish children, when are you gonna get straight A's? Show us your report card now. <laughs> so we learned not to push our Christmas agenda. But then in the third grade, we moved to a new neighborhood and I go to this new school, Pinecrest. And at Pinecrest, everyone is blonde. Everyone is blue-eyed. Everyone is named Jennifer or Jessica. <laughs> And when you're an immigrant kid, it's hard enough trying to fit in, but it was brutal at Pinecrest during the holidays because at this school, they went gaga during Christmas, okay? They were like decorations everywhere. They did not care about being PC or inclusive. They taught us Christmas carols instead of math. And... <laughs> and all of the kids were already bragging about the gifts that they were gonna get. And I was so stressed out because I was like, oh my God, these kids are already making fun of me for like my Asian features. Like they would call me flat face, 
pancake face, moon face. I mean, for third graders at a public school, like their use of metaphors was impressive. (laughs) So I didn't want to be that freak who didn't celebrate Christmas. Like what kind of family doesn't celebrate Christmas? Like even the Jewish kids at our school celebrated Christmas. (laughs) And so my brother and I begged our parents, please, can we at least have a Christmas tree? And we were at the supermarket where they were selling them. So we said, look, we can have that one. And my parents said, no, it's too expensive. But maybe we'll get a fake tree from Kmart. And I was like, Kmart? That's worse than no tree. (laughs) But it turns out a fake tree is more expensive. And my parents were not thinking long term. So they buy us an actual tree. And my mom, who never buys anything nice for herself, goes out and buys like the most beautiful ornaments, like these glass orbs with glitter and sequins and sparkles. And like, it turns out that my mom has the same taste as Liberace. (laughs) So we have this beautiful tree, but no presents. And I'm dreading going back to school and having my friends ask me what I got for Christmas. And my friend Jamie's like, oh, I got the new Nintendo and the Super Mario. Gigi, what did you get for Christmas? And I was like, uh, I got the new Super Mario too. Yep, yeah, what a fun game that I definitely have. Um, So yes, I lied, which is not in the spirit of Christmas. But I figured, like, I think Jesus would have done the same thing. (laughs) He probably wanted to eat lunch with someone. So fast forward to the sixth grade. We moved to this new neighborhood. I go to this new school. It's like a little more middle class, working class. But there's like more consumerism during Christmas because it's like the kids have something more to prove. And at the time, my best friend is this girl, Stacy Miller. Now, she is my best friend in the sense where she's also my number one nemesis. Okay? So, Stacey Miller was a model, alleged. Uh, She loved to say things like, I do a lot of catalog work. I'm big on catalogs. And she loved to criticize my outfits. She would look at me up and down, the way Paul Hollywood would look at a layer cake. And she would say, your outfit doesn't match. And those words would cut into me because it was true. My outfit sucked. Because I would usually wear what my parents would bring over from Korea, which was like knockoffs of American brands. So instead of wearing guest jeans, I would wear jeans that were spelled Goss. <laughs> so that year, my parents announced, for Christmas break, we're going to take you kids on a trip. And I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, they're going to take us to go see snow. We're going to live in a cabin. And they say, we're going to New Orleans. And I was like, New Orleans? That's, that doesn't sound like a Christmas destination. Like, that's where you go to do tequila shots. I was a very mature uh, sixth grader. Um, so we drive all the way from Miami to New Orleans, uh, making one stop, because that's the Korean way. And we arrive in the middle of the night. Now, this is back when there's no internet, no Expedia.com. And it turns out my dad has driven us all the way from Miami to New Orleans without making a hotel reservation. And so we drive from hotel to hotel looking for a room, but there are no rooms because it's the holidays. So unless we stumble upon an empty manger, we're driving back to Miami. But luckily we find a room at the Howard Johnson's, which I think technically wasn't in New Orleans. It was like another parish. Um, So the next day it is cold, it's rainy, And my parents are like, do you guys want to go on a riverboat cruise, like eat some gumbo? And I pout and say, I want to go to the mall. 
because this is Christmas break and I cannot go back to school without new clothes or like new presents or else Stacy Miller will crucify me. <laughs> and my parents, like, I don't know if it's because they felt bad about the, you know, no hotel thing, but they say, okay, okay, fine, we'll go to the mall. So we go to this touristy mall and I go straight to the limited. Now, I was so excited because this is not the limited to the junior store. This was the limited, the grown-up store. And I come across the most beautiful wool sweater, the color mauve, which is, everyone knows the fanciest color. And, and, and I'm from Miami, so to me, this sweater was exotic. And I was so exotic, excited about this exotic sweater. But I was sure that my mom would say, no, I'm not going to drop money on this wool sweater. We live near a swamp. But my mom looks at the sweater and she says, yes, it is a Christmas miracle. And also it was a very reasonable price for wool. So it's very happy. Meanwhile, my little brother's just like, I'm so bored. I'm so hungry. And my parents, you know, they're not the like Zagat type. So we end up having a holiday dinner at the Howard Johnson's. And I have to say that the chicken fingers were very, were very memorable. Um, so we go back to Miami and I'm so excited about my outfit. I've paired my mauve sweater with these tan pants that used to belong to my mom, but no one has to know. And I look cool. Like this is something like that DJ Tanner from Full House would wear. Okay. So I roll up to school and I see Stacy Miller and she's wearing like an incredible sweater set. And she comes over and she looks at me up and down and she says, your outfit doesn't match. And I was crushed. I wanted to be like, excuse me, this is not from the limited two. This is the limited, the grown-up store. But it was as if she could see right through me. Like I'm just this Korean girl whose parents don't know how to make hotel reservations and they have Christmas dinner at a Howard Johnson's. And so I never wore that sweater again. Also, I lived in Miami, so there were not many opportunities <laughs> to wear wool. But today, uh, I'm not friends with Stacy anymore, and, but I'm married to a very wonderful uh, American man, and his family loves Christmas. Uh, one of our Christmases, we spend with a family in Maryland, and um, the fireplace is roaring, Michael Buble is crooning. <laughs> Um, yes, he is white, in case you can tell. Um, <laughs> and there's like wrapping paper and bows, ribbons everywhere. It's like, you know, Santa's little workshop. And I look over at the presents that his family have wrapped, and they're, I mean, they're perfect. They look like they could be in a Macy's display window. And then I look at the presents that I've wrapped, and they somehow look like, like someone sat on them, or like someone's ripped the paper off and taped it back. But I think, you know what, I'm going to relax because this is my first American Christmas. But then his parents ask, so Gigi, what is your family doing for the holidays? And I'm like, oh, oh, they're out to dinner. Yep, they're out to dinner. But what I don't tell them is that they're probably at uh, Boston Market because you don't need a reservation. But I have to say that I got to respect my parents because after all these years, they still don't care what people think of them. They're proud of who they are. And I hope that this Christmas that I can embrace that aspect of our family. Thank you. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. 
One, two, three, four, he's making a list. He's checking it twice. Gonna find out who's not your nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. One, two, three, four, he's ready to sleep. He knows when you wake, he knows when you better go. So be good, you're kind of sick. Hey, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not boo. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Oh! So I call my mom, and in the middle of her telling me how excited she is for Christmas, I know I'm about to break her heart by telling her I can't come home this Christmas. I just got a job, and because of that, guess who's stuck working Christmas? I was 22 years old. I moved to New York City. I wanted to be a writer. But the only job I could get was in this one restaurant. They had a terrible uniform, and it was like 45 minutes each way in the commute. The restaurant was failing. We were making, like, no money at the time. So it was crazy to be in New York City among all these wealthy people. We're literally staring at Trump Tower from where we are. Now, the only thing I liked about this restaurant was the hostess. I worked on the bar where no one ever came, and she stood directly across from me. She had big, beautiful, curly hair, and she was from this big Jamaican family way out in Canarsie at the end of the L train. I remember the only thing I really said to her at this point was, hey, I really like your hair. And she said to me, oh, I just got it done. And she showed me the part in her hair where someone in her hair salon had sewn in the curly hair to the braids that were close to her scalp. And I said, oh my God, I thought that was your natural hair. And she said, white people, every single time you say that word for word. (laughs) I was thinking about my cousins back home and my brother and his kids and how much fun they're going to have. I started feeling sort of like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer when, you know, everybody's having fun without him, that kind of thing. I I had FOMO for Christmas. So I flip on the TV, this is 2005, that's how you got the news, and I see a Christmas miracle is brewing. Transit trouble today here in New York that could ultimately affect millions of commuters. In New York City, bus and subway workers walked off the job early this morning, leaving millions of commuters scrambling for alternative ways to get to work. The New York City Transit Authority is going on a general strike starting the following morning. There will be no trains, buses, or ferries anywhere in the five boroughs. It was like having an adult snow day. I don't have to go to work anymore. I can't get to the city. I've got just a few minutes, and if I get to the bus station in time, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to surprise my mom on Christmas. So I go into work to gather my things to get the hell out of there. And my boss says to me, hey, Sullivan, you live in Brooklyn, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, shame about that transit strike, huh? And she's like, hey, it's no big deal. I live in Brooklyn, too. So my husband has a car. I'll just come pick you up in the morning when I come in, and then you can work. You can actually work all the extra shifts for all the people who can't come in this week. Isn't that great? And as I see... Everybody else still has that grin on their face. Everybody else who lives outside of the city is still getting out of this place. And I just stood there thinking, yeah, great. I'll spend more time with my boss. I'll spend two hours in traffic with her and her husband and then come into work two hours early and 
pick up all these shifts from all these lucky people who are going home for Christmas. They have these smiles that just say, we already know exactly what party we're going to. We're going to eat the best food. We're going to have the best time without you. That is how all of New York City felt to me at that time. I didn't know anybody. I had no connections. I didn't get invited to cool parties. I had the terrible job. And everywhere you go, you just see these opulent, beautiful, rich homes and these people and these great clothes and they get invited to these things that you've never heard of and you know you couldn't really google stuff on your phone then so when someone would say hey have you heard of such and such you'd be like oh i only go there on mondays and they'd be like they're not open on mondays everything was like a trap for you to fall in so i go back home and I bump into my neighbor on the way in, and he's like, hey. And I was like, hey, how you doing? He's like, look, I'm really trying to get out of town before this transit strike happens. Hey, are you staying here for Christmas? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. And he's like, that's great. I don't know why he would think that's great. Other than that, when you're the solo on the totem pole in New York, and someone says that's great to you, what they really mean is, you can do me a favor. So he says, listen, I've got this bike, and let me tell you, I knew about his bike. This was my weird neighbor. He had this god-awful two-stroke 50cc Suzuki scooter from the 70s. It was red with a plastic fairing and a little basket on the front. The motor oil he had for it, it sounded like a lawnmower. You know, the lawnmower kind of spits out the oil, but the oil was strawberry scented. So I always knew when this guy pulled up because it was like he was coming through town just farting strawberries left and right, and then he'd park right in front of our building. I figured, yeah, I'm here, it's Christmas, I'll give you a hand. So as soon as he shuts the door and he leaves town, I think about, okay, so now I can say at least, you know, I need Tuesday off because I got to move this bike for this guy. And then I realize he's not going to know if I just borrow this bike to escape my evil boss. Somewhere between 5 and 8 million people ride the New York City subway every day. And it's all walks of life. You know, New Yorkers are a sympathetic bunch, especially to workers, I would say. But when you hear that, boy, CNN mistreats his workers, and you go, okay, I'm going to turn on NBC. It's a little different when they say, oh, the MTA mistreats their workers. And you have to say, oh, okay, well, I'll just take the nothing. There is no other way, and there's zero way to get from Brooklyn, where I lived, into Manhattan. The best they could devise was an agreement with the Taxi and Limousine Commission, where they would have all taxis do a $5 per zone. There were five zones in Manhattan. If you go to the Bronx, it's five more dollars. If you go to Staten Island, it's five more dollars. From where I worked to where I needed to get home, it was going to cost me $70 a day to go to my terrible job. And it was freezing cold outside. People had to wait in these huddles on the curb. If you were on Broadway, you were in this mass. It looked like a war zone of people trying to escape. Then you would get in a car that could just pick up strangers left and right all throughout the city. So a total stranger who could murder you would get in a car with you. And the next thing they would do is bring you to your home address. Now they knew where you live. So the next morning... There is nothing but traffic from my house in Brooklyn all the way to my job across the bridge into Manhattan. I feel bad for these people and everything because, of course, I'm a New Yorker, but I was having the time of my life. I am cruising between cars, just farting strawberries all the way across the Brooklyn Bridge. So I get into my job, and it's, like, kind of fun, actually, now, because now there's, you know, the snooty French sommelier is busting tables, and everybody's sort of pitching in, and if you didn't have everything in your uniform, it was okay today, but, you know, try better tomorrow. At the end of the night, it just kind of slows down. I'm looking at the hostess, and she's got a sad look on her face. 
She said, oh, geez, you know, all my friends are kind of screwed in their holiday shopping. Someone else was like, you know, it's crazy. They're like giving away the stuff this week. There's sales left and right. You know, it was a very corporate mall, but they would flip over a holiday announcement to the blank side in the back and just write in Sharpie, like whole store, 60, 70% off. And she just says, oh, my friends are bugging me all day because they're trying to get me to Christmas shop for them. But there's no way I'm going to be able to, you know, lug all that stuff and my work clothes and get there. And I realized this was my chance. This was the only situation in my whole life that my strawberry fartin' Suzuki was gonna be cool. So I turned to the hostess and I said, hey, if you want to pick up a couple things for your friends, I could give you a ride over there because parked outside, I have this Suzuki motorbike with a basket that my neighbor lent me for the week. And she's like, oh my God, could you? Oh my God. And she starts texting, like blazing text, T9 text, old school style. So before I know it, we are just dashing through the mall. It's four stories and we're probably the only people shopping. We can just pick up whatever we want and we load up the bike. And it is tiny. I mean, it's like you're trying to share a piano bench as you ride through town. So I get on the front, she gets on the back and I said, all right, hold on tight. And we whiz downtown just farting strawberries the whole way. She brings me downtown to this party where everybody's inside and they've got Christmas cookies and music playing and hot drinks. We bring the presents to them and it wasn't until I saw the look on everyone's faces. All this time, I just felt sorry for myself. I don't know anybody. I'm such a loser. I felt like Rudolph and I was left out of everything. And that was so dumb because I wasn't Rudolph. I was Santa Claus. So we go into these parties in these beautiful apartments and they're saying, the heroes are here, they brought Christmas, yay! And they're stuffing cookies in our faces and everything. And then we say, oh, sorry, but we gotta go, we have another delivery. And they're like, oh, stay, come back later. We're like, okay, Merry Christmas. So then we go to the next house and they come in and this time she's like grabbing my hand to bring me in and they're like, hey, oh my God, who's this? Like, this is my friend Brendan, he saved Christmas. And one of them says, he's cute. And, oh my God, I'd not once heard that in the whole time I was wearing a uniform in New York City. So we go to the next house and the next house and everyone wants us to come in. They're so happy to see us. They're so grateful. And they're like, who are you? Why did you even do this for us? You're a total stranger to us. And I just thought, you know, it's Christmas. And they're like, oh, that is so sweet of you. And what I really couldn't say to them was like, I was just having the best night of my life. Just going house to house, being the hero everywhere I went. This was my best night I ever had in New York City. We were going to all the coolest parties, and we couldn't stick around long enough because we had other places to go. It was so much fun, and every time she'd lead me out of there, you know, grabbing her little mitten hand on mine, saying, We gotta go! Bye! We'd go to the next place, and the next place... We go upstairs to the last house to deliver the presents. And Mrs. Claus, you know, she stays with me the whole time. And she's like, this is my friend, Brendan. He's the hero who saved Christmas. Can you believe it? They're Brendan. Cheers for Brendan. Yay, Merry Christmas. They're bringing more cookies and they say, pour a hot drink. Brendan, are you done? You must be freezing. Take your jacket off. Come in. And I stood around for a few minutes and I was really happy. I felt like I belonged. Like this was the city where I lived and where I needed to stay. And that's what they wanted me to do. They said, Brennan, why don't you just come over? You could even just stay on our couch tonight if you want. And I thought about it and I realized that this was so sweet. But I had to get up early and go open the next morning. 
So I put the mug down and I said to everyone, thank you so much, everybody. This has been the best night of my life. And I want to thank you all for sharing it with me. So have a good party. Merry Transit Strike to all. And to all a good night. This is Risk. This is Camera Obscura behind me now. And we just heard from Brendan J. Sullivan, who you can find on Twitter at Mr. Brendan J. When Brendan shared that, I I told him, oh, my God, I so vividly remember that winter and the strike. I was working as a fact checker for a magazine on Madison Avenue in the 70s, you know, 77th Street or something like that, and had to walk there from 154th Street in the super, super freezing cold weather with all the people out on them, you know, looking like they were trying to escape from a war zone, desperately trying to flag down whatever car, people trying to do carpools and craziness. It was was out of control. Speaking of out of control, before Brendan, we heard from Posca, little uh, punk rock version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town. In just a bit, we are going to hear from the hilarious DC Benny. But before that, someone who has just made their first appearance on the podcast this year, but is now one of our favorite storytellers, and he's back already. This is Matthew Dix. You can look up, he's written a book about how to tell stories called Story Worthy, and here he is now with a story we call The Polar Express. He was just a hundred yards from Mary I'm riding on a train. I'm riding on a train to the North Pole. I can feel the wheels clattering on the rails beneath my feet. The car is actually swaying back and forth gently. I'm heading north. I'm heading towards Santa's workshop and Mrs. Claus and Yuletide cheer. The interior of this train is decorated for Christmas as well. It's got twinkling lights and garland running up and down The car, there's music, Christmas carols playing from some unseen speakers. And there's a woman dressed like an elf, and she's running up and down the aisle, spreading Christmas joy to every single person around. I'm sitting with my daughter, 
Clara. She's seven years old. It's December of 2016. We are an atheist and a Jew, and we are heading north to meet St. Nick. It's the Essex steam train. It's a fabled locomotive set in Essex, Connecticut, that they convert in December to the Polar Express. And they do a great job. Kids get really excited about it. If we're really being honest, I get really excited about it. It's this attempt to make kids believe that you can get to the North Pole in two hours. You can make a 5,000-mile journey driving by old garages and the Connecticut River. Geographically illiterate children really believe that we're going to this place. As children are stupid, and that is why Christmas works for them for as long as it does. And I love this thing. The seat across from Clara and I are empty this year. My wife, Alicia, and my son, Charlie, they're usually sitting with us, but this is the first year they've not come with us. Charlie has chosen tonight to begin projectile vomiting. And my wife has drawn the short straw, which is really to say Charlie loves my wife so much more than he loves me. And it will always be that way. And that's a terrible thing. But there are benefits. And one of them is she is with a boy and a bucket and I am with the Jew and Santa Claus and so I am winning tonight. Now we're not alone in the car though. It's packed with kids and adults. Everyone has pajamas on because that's what you do when you go on the Polar Express. I would have pajamas on but I would have had to buy pajamas in order to do that. But I wear a little Santa hat because I really love what we're doing. And there's people everywhere. There's a woman who's sitting diagonally to me. And the moment I get on the train, she sort of starts staring at me. She's giving me that look that says, I know who you are. I just can't place you. And I give her the look of, I have no idea who you are. And I don't think I've ever seen you before in my life. But that's me. I don't recognize faces ever. My wife says that if I lined up 10 brunettes, including her, in a lineup, I would not be able to pick her out of that lineup. And that is not true, but there is some truth in what she says. And so I'm upset tonight that she's not with me because I need her in these moments when I don't recognize someone. She's the one who tells me, like, that's your first cousin, Matt. That is the woman you teach across the hall from. That is my mother. I really, I don't see anyone. So I've got this awkwardness going on. And there's children running up and down the aisles, and there's my daughter there, and it really is just a lovely and beautiful thing as we head north to the North Pole. And when we pull into the station, it's actually the Essex steamboat landing, but they've made it look like the North Pole. It's got reindeer, and we see Santa up on his sleigh. There's no snow. None of the kids question this, that there's why there's no snow on the North Pole, because they are really stupid. But they do a great job. We pull in, and I kind of believe a little bit like we've arrived in the North Pole. And the door opens, and Mrs. Claus steps onto the train. And she announces to the train that she's made cookies just for them. And you can see the children vibrate as she begins walking down the aisle, (laughs) passing out her cookies with elves behind her with big baskets with more and more cookies. And when they get to us, Mrs. Claus hands Clara a cookie Clara says the four words that she says the most in all of her life. Is this peanut free? Because my daughter has a peanut allergy. And Mrs. Claus doesn't answer Clara. She looks at me instead. And she gives me that look that says, I don't know if these cookies are peanut free. And I give Mrs. Claus the look that says, what the fuck is wrong with you, woman? You're on the fucking Polar Express. 
In today's day and age, you've got 25 kids and you don't know if you're serving peanut-free cookies? And she looks at me like, I don't know. And so my daughter is sitting there waiting for her cookie and Mrs. Claus says, I don't know if it's peanut-free. And Clara turns to me and says, why doesn't she know if it's peanut-free? She said she made them. And I'm trapped. I'm in this awful parental moment. And usually there's a person much smarter than me on the other side, ready to jump in with the right words. But she's not here. She's home with a bucket and a boy. So I have to somehow find the thing to say to keep this innocence preserved and for my daughter to please believe in Christmas for one more year. And so I think for a moment, and then I say to her, I bet the elves made the cookies and she's just taking credit for it. (laughs) And Clara ponders it for a second and then she starts to shake her head and she says, yeah, I think so. Because she's watched her father take credit for shit he has never done in his life for all of her life. So she now just assumes all adults do this kind of shit, including Mrs. Claus. But I take the cookie away because I don't know if it's peanut safe. And so Clara cries while all the children around us eat cookies. And I watch my daughter cry while in my head I begin writing the letter that will go out tomorrow to the Essex steam train asking them what the fuck they think they're doing and how I want my fucking money back because they've ruined my Christmas. And as this is happening, the door opens again and now Santa Claus steps on the train. And the kids just, they lose their minds. And Santa announces that he has a gift for everyone. It's a big basket. And he begins walking down the aisle, passing out these gifts. And the gift Santa has chosen this year is a small, white, insidious bell. This son of a bitch (laughs) has brought a bell on this train, one for every goddamn kid on this train. He could have given them a stuffed animal, a coloring book. Heroin would have been better than this bell. And they all start ringing the bell. He's getting off the train in a minute, but I have 45 minutes with 25 kids and a bell. But when my daughter gets it, she starts ringing and she is so happy. And so I deal with it. I look across at the woman who's still trying to figure out who I am. And I'm looking at her and she's suffering with her little boy and I'm suffering with my little girl. But my little girl is happy. So for 45 minutes, which feels like six hours, we drive back down to Essex while those goddamn bells ring. And when you pull into the station, Clara jumps up. She's heading to the door, and it's got three big steps to get off the train, and I know it, and I'm worried she's going to topple over. So I go to chase her to slow her down, and she's already hit the stairs, but the conductor is at the bottom of the platform, and he's reaching up and taking her hand, so she's going to be okay. So I follow behind her. I step down those three steps, and when my foot hits the platform, I turn to look for Clara, and suddenly that woman who's been sitting diagonally from me She's right here in my face. She takes a step closer, right into my space. And then she grabs me. She grabs all of my junk in one ferocious, insane grip. She holds everything I've got. And she stares at me in the eyes like a crazy person on a platform filled with children and parents and somewhere around here, Santa Claus, she just holds me. And this myriad of emotions like hit me at once. One is anger, like anger that like 
Mrs. Claus already almost fucked up Christmas. This is really pushing it. Like, I feel like, my God, what are you doing? This is Christmas. It's never good. But like, if I'm 20 and I'm at a party and I'm kind of drunk, this is kind of great, right? And even if I'm 40 and I'm out somewhere at night, at least it's kind of a compliment. And there is a thought for a moment that this might be a little bit of a compliment because I've been married for 14 years and it does occur to me, this is the first woman in 14 years to grab me other than my wife. So there is that fleeting little bit of, oh, look at that. (laughs) But it's replaced right away because she's crazy. She's really holding on to me. And I start to just feel like, my God, like, what are you doing? It's probably two seconds, but it feels forever. And then she just lets me go, and she turns and she takes the hands of her little boy, and she starts walking down the platform. And I suddenly have this urge to shout, like, stop, like, I've just been assaulted, like, that is sexual assault, stop. But right away my mind starts going, and I see what's going to happen, which is all ridiculous in my mind, which is, even if they stop her, a cop is going to come up to me and he's going to say, what happened? And I'm going to say, well, she grabbed my penis for a moment. And I just know it's not going to go well. And my daughter's going to be standing there the whole time hearing this. And I'm never going to be able to protect her from it and keep that innocence alive. And so I just watch her walk away, this crazy person. And so I take my daughter's hand and we go back to the car. And when I get her strapped in, I get into the front seat and she's ringing that fucking bell. But now I'm happy because I want to call my wife more than anyone in the world right now and tell her what happened. So I call her. And I tell her while the bell's ringing in the back is sort of camouflaged. I say, you're not going to believe what just happened. And I tell her what happened. And she says to me, oh, my God, are you okay? And that's the moment I understand. Really, in my heart, understand. Of course I'm okay. I'm a man. And a woman grabbed me, but not for a second did I feel like I was in danger. Not for one instant did I feel threatened or violated even. All the time that she held me, I knew that if I needed to, I would be able to push that woman away, knock her down, and that I was safe. But I thought right away, what if I was home with the boy in the bucket? And my wife was on the platform. And someone had, in the words of our president, grabbed her by the pussy. Or grabbed her breast. Because what was sort of a crazy, amazing, call your wife and tell her you're not going to believe this moment for me, would have been something much more for her. If someone's going to do something like this at the Polar Express, how safe is this world really? It's the first moment, truly, that I've always known the difference, but I know it in my heart for the first time, that I am a white, straight man. And I walk through this world with relative safety. I walk with impunity. Like, I do not fear in the way that my wife fears when she's alone or the way some of my friends fear when they are alone. I am a person who can get through life walking down a street almost never concerned about my safety. I was fine. But now I think about my wife and I think about my friends my friends who are not white and straight and male, and how they walk out of places like this, out onto streets, and see the world in a way I'm never, ever going to be able to see it. 
I think about that night on that platform when that woman grabbed me and how different it would have been if I was anyone but me. Thank you. I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 70s. My father was an artist, a Polish Jew who came from immigrant parents who had a grocery store. They lived upstairs, the whole situation uh, in the ghetto. So ultimately it was burned down, you know, and like a do the right thing. They moved over from Poland and escaped the Holocaust. Everybody else got killed in the Holocaust, but they made it through. And uh, he became an artist, much to his parents' chagrin. And my mother was a German dancer that he met in New York, a modern dancer. So they were very creative. There was a lot of creativity going on. Everything was interpreted. And he would paint. My mother was his muse. So there were always naked pictures of my mother in the house on the walls growing up or whatever. So that's always nice when your four-year-old friends, five-year-olds come over and say, is that your mom's Pachina? And you're like, eh. So I grew up in this kind of artsy-fartsy house. Like, I never watched shows other kids watched. It was always, like, masterpiece theater, foreign movies. My mom used to take me to see, like, Fellini and Truffaut and all these movies. I'm a kid, Kurosawa movies. I'm watching Seven Samurai. I'm four years old. And other kids are watching, like, SWAT and shit like that. She dressed me different. She would get all the clothes at the thrift shop and had these, like, little velvet fucking knickerbockers and stuff and shiny shoes that looked like a little Dutch boy. It was horrible. It was horrible. That part of it was horrible for me. So I never felt like the same as other kids. So because of the German Jew thing, I was growing up in a world that was predestined for conflict. Now, on my mother's side of the family, her father was in the German army. And, uh, you know, that was a topic of discussion. So she uh, converted to marry my father. But it just wasn't enough, so his side of the family sat shiva on him like he was dead to them. Even though my mother converted, my dad married someone who was a German Catholic, so 
his family said that he was kind of dead to them. They sitting Shiva is almost like somebody you do it after someone dies. So it's very dramatic. It's so over the top, and it did not go over well with my mom or my dad. You know, that's that's not nice. But it was all because of this guy that was in the German army. And I remember asking her when I was a kid, was he a Nazi? And she was like, no, he had to join the army. They shoot you. Like, just like, if you don't do your homework, you're going to get shot. That's how it goes down. So they decided that they were going to move to D.C., which is not a good move if you're creative at this time. This is the early 70s. Very conservative there. We lived in a shitty neighborhood. 14th and P Street, which uh, was a very rough neighborhood. There's like drug dealers and hustlers and this and that. I remember there was a lady with no legs down the hall, the banana lady that we used to go see. And my mom would be like, let's go see the banana lady. And we'd go see her and she'd give me like bananas and she had no legs. It was strange. And I remember my mom, someone trying to break in through the alley in the back there was a screened off porch and alley and just like one night this guy's prying his fingers through a hole he made in this screen and my mom was taking this broom and just hitting him in the head with a broom repeatedly just beating this guy in the head and still he's got one eye closed trying to squeeze through and she's just smacking him in the head telling him to go home and I'm just watching this three years old so we eventually moved out of that neighborhood we moved into a DC suburb but we were the only artistic family in the neighborhood. Everybody worked for the government, so it was a lot of, you know, cherry loafers and pressed khakis, George Bush haircuts and stuff like that. And our house was like the fucking Adams family house. It was like you go down the block, there's all these houses that look the same, and then it was our house. And like my dad would find these old doors and windows and glue them together and make enclosed parts of it. It just looked almost like a spaceship from somewhere else. And people would walk by and they, all the houses look kind of the same neighborhood, nice little lawns. And they walk by our house like, what the fuck is that? Who the fuck lives here? You know, and it was my parents. So. My mom would teach dance classes in the house, and it was modern dance, so it was very, it was out there. There was some, like, 70s space music, and people, it was just different. And she would go around and get antiques. She had this thing about antiques. We had no fucking money. We're on welfare. But somehow, she would go get these antiques, and she would go trashing. She'd go in the trash and find these things and bring them back. So there'd be like these wrought iron fixtures on the lawn and it was just, it looked crazy. It looked like some Edward Scissorhands would live there or something like that. Our house. And people were always like, that's that. That's the Adams family house. So she wears this big hat and everybody called her the bike lady. She'd ride around on a bike. She'd pick up wrought iron antiques in the bike. It was, you can't explain this existence to people, how different it was. You know, everybody else has their big wheels. They're like, what is wrong with your parents? And my dad would paint and he'd paint my mom naked and a couple other things, dead birds, uh, biblical scenes, like really crazy Absalom and Achitophel. It was just a it was just a really intense environment to grow up in. Everything was creative. You know, every dinner was a production. You know, everything was melded. Religiously, it was very confusing because there was the Jewish part, there was the sort of non-Jewish part. So every year there was a new configuration of how we were going to do the holidays. It was mostly Hanukkah, but then there'd be like a little Christmas stuff. And then also my parents had these friends. There was nobody in the neighborhood they were friends with, but they would import 
these nutbag friends of theirs. So there was the guy who slept in Rock Creek Park in a cardboard box that wrote poetry all over the box. The poetry guy. My mom loved that guy. He eventually got banned for peeing in one of the house plants during dinner. Uh, my dad was like, that guy can't get up during dinner and piss in a house plant. It's just, we can't have that. You know, it's great. He writes on the box and all that, but no more. No more. And then the trash men would come over. My mom would make him breakfast. I'd come downstairs. We're eating breakfast with the trash men. We had a, an RAF pilot, you know, it was all these random. But my favorite friend of theirs was this guy, Michael, who was this gay opera singer. He was Italian. He had a glass eye from a hate crime. He, he hit on the wrong guy in some bar in West Virginia, and someone beat the shit out of him, and then he had this glass eye. But it was not fitted properly. So it would pop out a lot, especially if you made him laugh. For me, I was just discovering I was funny at that time. So I would, every time he'd come over for dinner, I'd make jokes. And he'd be like, ho, ho, ho. And then the, the eye would bug out. And sometimes it would actually kind of pop out. And he would hold it and show it to me. like, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was the coolest thing ever is that fucking eye, man. So these, these are like my parents' friends. At this time in my life, I really, really wanted, I wanted to be like the other kids in the neighborhood. I, I think I was about eight, but I, I didn't look like them. I, you know, I couldn't watch this. Like I go to school, kids would be like, oh, we watched SWAT or we watched Six Million Dollar Man or whatever. I'm watching fucking Fellini movies, The Grand Illusion. I mean, that's what I would watch. And I couldn't talk to these kids about anything. You know, my mother would read me these morbid German fairy tales for bedtime. There was Der Strubelpeter, which is this tailor that when kids are bad, he comes over with this giant pair of scissors and like cuts off their thumbs. <laughs> or, or like there's one where these kids are making fun of a black kid and he sets them on fire. So they're black. So they learn a lesson what it's like to be. So there's like a moral, it was German morality in these stories. So it's, I can't even explain how different my upbringing was to everybody around me. I just wanted to be like other kids. I wanted the same toys the other kids had and the same clothes. Everybody's got their granimals on or their tough skins or whatever. I didn't have any of that shit. I had my little buckle shoes and my velvet vest or whatever. It was just, oh, it's traumatic talking about it. The one toy that everybody wanted was this G.I. Joe with Kung Fu grip. Introducing the new G.I. Joe adventure. And uh, you pull the string in the back and it says stuff. He makes commands. It's like, you know, get to action station. Fire on the mountain or whatever. You know, it said a lot of shit. We're, we're there. Let's go down to the mountain pass, you know, and you pull this. And everybody wanted it. My parents were like, no, you can't have the G.I. Joe. So I wanted one of those. So my grandmother, who had sat shiv on all this, would once in a while, she'd sneak by, slide me some money. She'd be like, just remember, you're going to be Jewish. You're going to have a bar mitzvah. You're going to date Jewish girls. But here's $5. And then my mom was like, you can't take bribes. You got to decide for yourself later what you're going to be. Don't take any money from Grandma Sadie. So I was torn. You know, I wanted the G.I. Joe. Because I felt like that would be the thing that would make me normal with the other kids. Like, I'm, I have a G.I. Joe. You have a G.I. Joe. It doesn't matter that I can, quote, Rocco and his brothers or, or whatever. So Christmas came around. This is my parents would fight all the time. Like, the police were always at our house. They, they got to know us. There was always something. They fought with the neighbors. It was very volatile, but they loved each other. They loved each other. So it was like these fights, these intense fights, but they just loved each other afterwards. It was really crazy. So I think the Ali Frazier fight of all of them that I can remember was during Christmas Eve. It was going to be Christmas Eve, so my parents were going to have all their friends over. My mom had just gotten some chair from this antique dealer 
that this guy, I think he had a crush on her. He gave her a little discount. It was like a layaway thing. I don't know what the fuck, how the details were. We had no money, and yet she had this antique chair. I mean, if you walked in there, it was just, it was like you're in another world. It's like you're in old Europe somewhere. So she had just brought home one of these chairs. And I could tell my dad was pissed because we didn't have any money, but he wasn't really saying anything. Everybody's like, oh, look at the chair. The chair looks great. Look at the chair. You know, my mom did a dance around the chair. You know, you know, it was a modern dance interpretation. Around the chair. So in the morning, my dad would send me to go get cigarettes. So I get on my bike. I'm fucking eight years old. I'd have a note. I go to the Korean place and I get a carton of Marlboro Reds, right? And then I, I could go to the liquor store. And this is the 70s. And I had another note that I would get Almaden Mountain Red Burgundy, which is this cheap ass wine. I don't even know if they still make it that was some rot gut stuff so I put it in my bike no helmet I didn't have any helmet back then and I'd bring all that shit back so they got their supplies my dad's cooking my dad was a great cook and my mom's playing music and dancing around the house and everything's kind of cool and then people start trickling in you know this uh, Indian English guy that was in the Royal Air Force he was talking about bombing Germans so he, w- he would come over you know he's been boozing already the poet in the box came this was I think later that he actually got banned for peeing in the plant. A couple other people, and oh, and there was also a farmer. This farmer would come around the neighborhood, and he would bring uh, food from his farm. And then my favorite guy, Michael, the opera singer with the eye, he he, he shows up. So everybody's hanging out, and the party's starting. They start drinking. They're drinking that Almaden Mountain Red Burgundy. They're smoking. The opera singer guy broke out a little weed. And my mom was like, she smoked it. And she's like, I can't, I want to go back to where I was. I don't like, to. so everybody's hanging out. And what we would do is we would combine. We had this giant menorah that my mother had found somewhere in an antique shop. They would tie bits of Christmas tree branch to it. We called it the tree nora. So the tree nora is in the corner. So we had this kind of Chris Monica kind of thing going on. I remember every year it was something different, but this year it was like really official. And we we're going to do that. So my parents have everybody over. I'm thinking about this G.I. Joe. It's not under the Trinora. There's like a wooden thing, and there's a book of Grimm's fairy tales, which I've really had enough of the fucking juniper tree, all these morbid uh, stories. And they're boozing. Everybody's getting hammered on this Almaden, and the doorbell rings. It's the antique dealer that my mom has gotten this chair from that she was supposed to pay for. Didn't have any money, so this guy's come to repossess the chair. The RAF pilot... It's like, you can't take, you bloody hell. Takes a swing at him. They get into a scuffle. And then finally, the farmer goes out to the van and got a two-by-four that had a nail in it. And he was like, this is what I kill hogs with. And you're going to leave that chair right here. And you're going to go back to Armenia or wherever you came from. The chair did stay. I think the chair did stay. I think I repossessed later, but... Uh, the guy came with reinforcements. So it was just a very tense evening. After that, my dad's like, okay, everybody's got to go. My parents get in this huge argument, right? And every time they got in an argument, the World War II shit came up. So it's Christmas Eve, and I'm hearing it. My dad's like, you go into your body, goddamn you, the, the antiques, we're on welfare. And then she's like, you failed artist, you're yeah, painting. So all this is going on. They get into it. There's a huge fight. My mom's like, your mother said shiva on me. I'm not shik, so I'm not good enough for you. And he's like, what are you talking? You know, she's like, I wish they burnt your mother in the oven. I wish they stuck you in the oven, right? So my dad is outside, 
when she said that, smoking a cigarette, and she locked him out of the house. And I knew that oven line. I was like, that's like, ugh, it's going to happen. So he punched through the glass, reached in and started unlocking the door. And I see his hand. I mean, all fucking cut up and everything. And I'm like, Mom, go, 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 because he's going to fucking kill you, right? They're yelling. He's wrapping a, a dish towel around his hand. There's fucking blood everywhere. He's like, where is she? Where is she? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And then right then, if it wasn't bad enough, this is a thing that my mother used to do when they would argue. She would crank on this German marching music. And so you hear it in the house, like, you know, it's like, and it's like Oktoberfest music and German marching music, whatever. And it's like Quasimodo and the bells for him. him. Him hearing that fucking, I mean, his face, you know, he's covering his ears with the bloody hand. He's like, ah, he's punching the refrigerator. He's losing his mind. He's banging on the door. He goes downstairs. He's like, smashes the fucking chair, right? Just destroys the chair. The music's playing. He stayed in the basement, just destroying stuff. She locked herself upstairs, playing this crazy fucking music. That was our, our Christmas Eve, man. It was one of many traumatic things. But like I said, they loved each other. The next morning I get up, the Chris Madonica tree is trashed. But it's like nothing ever happened. Like, he's cooking some breakfast. She comes downstairs. She's like, she looks at him and she's like, you, you want to fight? <laughs> you want to fight? She's like, come on, but you know, fat man, you want to fight? She's kind of teasing him and shit. She's like, are you still mad at me or whatever? And starts poking him and everything. And he's like, oh, he started laughing and he gives her a hug or whatever. And they, and they both apologize to me. And the cycle sort of happened all over again. But it was right then at breakfast, they're kind of making up. Everything feels like it's going to be normal again for the next few days. And the phone rings, and it's the opera singer guy, and he has lost his glass eye. And he's like, he's frantically, he can't find it, he doesn't know how he got home without it, and can we look for the glass eye? So we're all looking for it, we're looking under the chair bits, we're looking all over for this fucking eye, and I'm trying to remember, I made him laugh at the dinner table, what did it pop out there, or whatever. But then I remember that he used to go out, we had a compost in the back, and he would go out and smoke a joint back there every once in a while, because my parents didn't do that. I went out, and there, like right next to an orange rind, was that uh, glass eye. So I bring it in. Boom. They call him. I get a reward of $5. I get the fucking G.I. Joe. He gets the eye. So, (laughs) and it was not like a bribe. My mom was like, you can take that $5. She gave him his eyeball back. So the story does have a happy ending. It all ends ends happy until the next fight, you know, which (laughs) was, I think, about four or five days later. Folks, we have just one last little treat for you this year, and it is a brand new song by none other than J.C. Cassis, the producer and business director of Risk. A brand new song written by and performed by and whatever else by (laughs) J.C. Cassis. Well, Christmas is here, it sends shivers up my spine Cause this part of the year is my least favorite time I don't stuff stockings, I don't buy dead trees I only like shopping if the shopping is for me The food makes me fatter, Christmas cookies taste like wood Ugly sweaters don't flatter, and I prefer to 
The weather is nasty. The crowds are insane. Don't be mad at me, but I just gotta say, Christmas, Christmas is bullshit. I hate the music and pretending winter is fun. It's the worst season. Everybody knows it. So I can have fun. You can call me a killjoy, a curmudgeon, a Grinch, but I call it like I see it, and I won't give an inch. I don't need Santa. I can buy shit for myself. I don't care about job security for an elf. Traditions don't matter. Sometimes they're obscene. Let me give an example. You see what I mean? Name one other time you would ever drink eggnog. If you don't like what I'm saying, you can suck my Yule log. 'Cause Christmas, Christmas is bullshit. I hate the music and pretending winter is fun. It's the worst. Say, you're gonna say. Maybe you don't like Christmas because you haven't met the right Christmas yet. But we all know that's not how that works. I've tried Christmas 35 times. It's not working for me. But they say, don't complain about a problem without offering a solution. Fine. Next year, no Christmas, just two Halloweens. Christmas, Christmas, Christmas is bullshit. Christmas is Nobody likes it. How are we just not Nobody wants no fruitcake. Throw that shit out.
That is all for this week's episode, folks, and that is all for this year's episodes. <laughs> this is Les Brown behind me now, and we just heard from J.C. Cassis. That song is, of course, called Christmas is Bullshit, and you can get it everywhere you listen to music. You can follow J.C. on all social media at J.C. Cassis. That's J-C-C-A-S-S-I-S. Before JC, we heard from the hilarious DC Benny, that story, Jewish Christmas. You can find him on Twitter at DC Benny. I want to give a huge, huge from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. My enormous gratitude to all of our Risk staff. There's our producer, J.C. Cassis. There's our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Our story editors, John LaSala and Marty Garcia. Our audio engineers, Gary Levitt, Dave Pellucci, and Michael Glines. Our Los Angeles live show producer, Beowulf Jones. Our story coaches and story studio teachers, Cindy Freeman, Brad Lawrence, Mel Dockery, David Crabb, Don Fraser, Julia Rossi, Gail Thomas, Amy Salloway, and Julia Whitehouse. Our webmaster, Ethan James. Our administrative assistant, Shelley Jordan. Our videographer, Matt Anderson. Our stamps.com liaison, Chris Castiglione. Our publicist, Sheila Kenny. Our assistant talent booker, Jeremy Ween. Our touring agent, Josh Lindgren. And our literary agent, Liz Parker. We love our staff so very much. Folks, thank you so much for another extraordinary year. We love our fans so very dearly. And let's make 2019 an even better one. Now, I am going to go to Thailand for a few weeks. So if you need me, I will be far too busy eating booty. Folks, (laughs) today's the day. Take a risk. Santa Claus has got a big fat dick And Santa Claus has got a big fat dick And Santa Claus has got a big fat dick And Santa Claus has got a big fat dick Ho, 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 ho